Welcome to the Real Immunity Podcast, where we'll dive deeper into the topics from the Real Immunity film series. To learn more, go to realimmunity.org. Welcome you to our Real Immunity podcast. And today we have Dr. Andrew Wakefield that I'm interviewing and I'm thrilled to have Andy here. I met him back in 2009, I believe it was, at a National Vaccine Information Center conference where I closely observed how compassionately he met with parents as they flooded him after the conference and could see his degree of integrity and just kindness towards individuals and also his optimism about the world. So thrilled to have him here today. We also, um, he agreed to speak at a conference I held in Dallas in 2016. And then I interviewed Andy for my Real Immunity series, uh, the film that came out in 2018. And he talked about mother's intuition and he talked about Um, where we were going in the world. This was well before the COVID business started out there. And I found him to be um, predictive about things that were coming down the pike. So I'm thrilled to have you here today, Andy. Welcome. Welcome. So thank you very much. A great pleasure to be with you. Okay. So the the first thing I want to talk about, um, you've done lots of films that people are familiar with, and we can, we can touch on what you have coming down the pike but you have an article that was published in the Journal of Physicians and Surgeons, fall of 2019. And that article was called The Sixth Extinction, Vaccine Immunity and Measles Mutants in a Virgin Soil. And I have lately been lecturing quite a bit about how homeoprophylaxis could be a instrumental, hold an instrumental, instrumental role in healing our relationship with microbes because our relationship with these diseases has been impacted. And I think that your article touches on this. And for those who haven't read the article, I would love for you to kind of summarize the article and talk to us about this sixth extinction. Right, well, I better recall that article uh, as closely as I can. Yes, the sixth extinction, why the sixth extinction? There have been five major extinction events in the geological history of planet Earth. And these, the last of these was, I think, the late Cretaceous extinction phase, which was all the end of the dinosaurs. And that occurred because of a meteorite hitting the uh, the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the Yucatan Peninsula, and creating through the dust that it threw into the atmosphere a, a dramatic cooling of the earth and a, a, an ice age. Um, we are now on an extinction curve. Mankind is on an extinction curve, and that is predicted by the mortality exceeding natality, the birth rate. And if you remain on that curve, then the first thing you do is incur a dramatic shift in the age of the population so that you get fewer and fewer younger people and a much higher proportion of older people. And and you throw the sort of population dynamics completely askew. 
and ultimately mankind becomes extinct. This the unique in as much as that it's the first extinction event that we face that has been entirely of our own making. And the good thing about that, if there is a good thing, is that we can stop it. We couldn't stop a meteorite hitting the Yucatan Peninsula, but we we can stop this one. And I've used um, man's relationship with infectious disease uh, and latterly vaccination, and measles in particular is a prototypic respiratory virus that um, has a very interesting history over the last several hundred years. So if, if you'd like, I can go into the background to measles and, and why it is so interesting, a portend for what we might expect with other things. And as you say, we, we talked about all of these things before COVID came along, but so much of what has happened with COVID really was predictable based upon our knowledge of measles. So let's go back to measles prior to 1920 in developed countries. And prior to 1920, measles was an appreciable killer of children. 1,200 per million children would die during epidemics, largely from the complications of measles, which were diarrheal disease in the absence of clean water to replace the fluid loss and uh, intercurrent infection. So the combination of measles plus tuberculosis, for example, was just too much for the respiratory system, the body to bear. And so there was a very high mortality. And then beyond 1920 in developed countries, there was a dramatic change. And there was a precipitous fall in case fatality rate, such that by the 1960s and the introduction of the single measles vaccine, there had been a 99.96% reduction in case fatality rate. In other words, measles was becoming rapidly and dramatically a milder and milder disease. And this is often the way that man interacts with virus. When you first encounter a virus in a virgin soil population, that is a population of people who have never seen this infection in any form before. So they're getting it for the first time. It's in that population you see very high mortality rates. But a successful parasite doesn't kill its host. It allows its host to, to survive and thereby create a pool of infected and individuals who can then spread it to susceptible individuals. So if, you, if you're a, a parasite that kills its host, then you diminish your opportunities for perpetuating your species amongst a susceptible population. So successful parasites, and measles was, um, became a milder and milder disease, and people survived it. So the first question is, if we had done nothing in terms of introducing mass vaccination, what would have happened? And one could predict that that mortality curve would diminish to approach effectively zero. Right. That measles, there would be universal measles, but the universal eradication of death, people would not be dying from measles infection. That would have been the natural pattern of events had we left things well alone. And that, uh, and this is highly relevant to your own interest, is that decline in case fatality rate 
that milder and milder evolution of measles was, that's herd immunity. That's herd immunity. It's man's interaction with the infection that um, man is able to deal with this infection far more effectively. And so what we're looking at there is a, an effect of natural herd immunity, which until recently was very unpopular with the vaccinologists because it threatened the belief that vaccines were the greatest thing that we could ever have done to improve our immunity against vaccines. And that has been clearly shown to be false in the face of right. COVID-19. So we, and please, Sir, interrupt me at any stage. if you want Yeah, to so you're saying natural biology reigns. Natural biology takes care of it. We don't need to intervene and manipulate no we, we we do we do not there you can they, they made a case for universal measles vaccination and I'll, t I'll talk about that but we saw this decline with all infectious diseases irrespective of whether there was a vaccine for it or not right. tuberculosis diphtheria tetanus all of these diseases were diminishing in terms of the mortality and therefore the severity of the infection so um that was the sort of background to this. And then came along the um, discovery of measles by Enders at Harvard. And he, um, a meeting was convened at the, at the National Institutes of Health uh, at the behest of, of um, JFK, John F. Kennedy. And there was a discussion a robust discussion about the merits of universal measles vaccination. Clearly, it appealed, it, it, it appealed enormously to the vaccinologists. They saw it as being something they could capitalize on the perceived success of polio vaccination and smallpox vaccination. Can we do the same with, with measles? measles? Even <clears throat> though we know the story behind smallpox and yeah. polio in particular is very different to the one and in contrast to that, Andy, you know, from a homeopathic standpoint and a metaphysical standpoint, we believe that Mother Nature sweeps the earth with certain diseases to teach us something. And as we learn that, whatever it is, those diseases diminish. Yes, I, they, not only is there a benefit in terms of instructing, you know, the learning of the immune system to deal with this infection, but there are knock-on effects of exposure that are now perceived to be beneficial. The you know, perceived, the reported protection against certain tumors in those who experienced either measles or chickenpox, for example. Um, so are there unknown benefits, uh, or at least or those benefits that have not been anticipated as having a direct relationship with the infection, now it's emerging, may well do. So yes, I think there is this, right. this instruction, <clears throat> this learning of the immune system that helps to yeah. protect and us. And, and, and the other thing to say about that, which is highly relevant to COVID, is that the exposure to a natural infection appears to produce a much more robust and much broader protection against other viruses or bacteria of the same species so that if we're exposed to influenza then when the next influenza in pandemic or epidemic comes even though 
the virus is different in many ways in terms of its um, molecular makeup, there is sufficient similarity that our right. prior infection with flu last year protects us against severe flu this year. That doesn't happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a study that I quote frequently by Cowling and Fang in 2012, where they tested people with the flu vaccine and their immunity to that specific strain may be increased, but their susceptibility to all the other mutations was compromised. So these people were sicker after having the flu vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's seems to be the case for so many of these infections and most certainly appears to be the case with COVID, where we're now seeing, we was kind of jumping forward now, but we're seeing that those who have been vaccinated are more susceptible to infection and more susceptible to severe infection and more susceptible to hospitalization than those who've not been vaccinated. And this again was based upon our knowledge of viruses was somewhat predictable. Anyway, so, so let's not let's not jump ahead. But if you're agreeable, I'll come back to the sort of measles story and sure, yeah, and and the promises made by the vaccinologists at that meeting at the NIH were that the measles they now had the tools in the single measles vaccine to allow for the rapid and complete eradication of measles globally. These are, these are promises that were made that there would be no severe consequences from this vaccination. There would be no death and no encephalitis as there had been with natural measles, that um, it would produce, as with the natural infection, one exposure would lead to lifelong immunity. These promises were almost sort of kindergarten in their mentality because they had no right. nothing on which to base this information. Hubris. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Hubris. Yeah. Absolutely. And and what happened was in fact they they invited an expert from the UK who was the world's leading microbiologist at the time. And they had Dr. Enders there from Harvard, and both of them expressed concerns. Both of them said, look, if this vaccine does not work as well as natural infection, does not produce lifelong immunity to this infection, but merely changes the age at which you're susceptible, let's say it works for a few years, and then a few some years later, you become susceptible again, you may be making it a more serious disease, because we know with measles, that the disease is trivial in children now, but it's more severe in infants under the age of one or and adults. And so there is a higher mortality in those infants under the age of one and adults. So if you merely displace the age of susceptibility upwards, you've made it a more dangerous disease. But they assured everybody that, that it was going to be fine. It would be just like natural infection just a milder dose and um, everything would be fine. And we would eradicate this infection completely from the world. All of these predictions were completely unfounded and completely untrue. And have, history has since shown us that they were catastrophically mistaken in those assumptions. And so there you had a time when there was not a consensus. Measles was deemed to be a mild infection, but 
they pushed very, very hard. And of course, they succeeded in getting their measles vaccine program. And it soon emerged that it didn't work. What they called the honeymoon period was over after a few years, and then people became susceptible to infection again. And so they decided, of course, to introduce a booster because the vaccine was not effective. They needed to give a booster and then another booster. And now we're in a situation where people are looking at three, four doses of the vaccine and it's failing miserably. And this case really came about, the original herd immunity came about through two mechanisms. And that is that um, the vast majority of measles occurs in childhood. And that is the first opportunity for a highly infectious respiratory virus like measles to get a lot of individuals congregating in one space, school, right. kindergarten, kids who were susceptible to measles, went to school, suddenly there was a perfect uh, environment in which the virus could rapidly spread between these children. And so it was a common childhood, a very common childhood infection. And it was in those children that it was the mildest. There were two scenarios that um, led to that. Well, there's, broadly, there's specific immunity and non-specific immunity that contributed to that natural herd immunity. The non-specific immunity is just the sort of general well-being of the population. Other infections are diminishing, people are more robust, they're eating better food, whatever. And then on the other side of the equation, you've got the specific immunity. Now, key to that was the fact that one dose leads to protection for life of the natural infection, so that adults were protected by having had the virus in childhood. They didn't get it when it was a more serious disease. And so that was a major part of herd immunity. The other part was that breastfeeding mothers who had experienced measles conferred very good transplacental and breast milk immunity to their babies for the first year of life. And that passive immunity protected them through that first year when they were more susceptible to serious disease. And the problem with vaccination is that one, it doesn't last so that you become susceptible as an adult and there's a higher mortality amongst adults. And vaccinated mothers do not confer good immunity on their babies through breast milk. They produce very little antibody. So babies are now susceptible to measles during the first year of life when it's a more dangerous disease. And that is a consequence of vaccination. So vaccination has effectively destroyed natural herd immunity. All that incredible effect, that decay in mortality from the 1920s until the introduction of the vaccine, all of that has been obliterated by the introduction of the vaccine. This is something that they're very, very uncomfortable dealing with and would likely refuse to accept, but it is a fact. Right. And it's compounded by and this is where we get to the, the danger of this. It's compounded by the fact, and we've seen this with COVID, that when you, a virus, when you have an infection, and let me just give you a little bit of background, it's a, a swarm of quasi-species. The RNA viruses are highly mutagenic. They, they mutate very rapidly. 
so that within a, an infection or a vaccine, you have a swarm of strains, but you have a dominant strain. And then there are other, what are called quasi-species, much lesser common in, in the vaccine or the infection. It's that dominant species that's most important. When you introduce a vaccine, what you do is you put a selection pressure on the virus, a genetic selection pressure that encourages the virus to evolve into forms that are resistant to the vaccine immunity. Now we saw this par excellence with antibiotics. They were a miracle hundred years ago, absolutely wonderful, best thing we've ever done. But the problem was that the, the antibiotics were imperfect. They might kill 95% of the bacteria, but the 5% that are resistant to the antibiotic then are unchallenged in the ecosystem. They don't have any other strains to compete with. They become the dominant strain. The right. resistant strain, the antibiotic resistant strain, becomes the dominant strain. And if that strain is more dangerous, then you're in real trouble. And that's exactly what's happened with vaccines as well, is that we, so this happened with antibiotics. We all know it. We're now in what the post, the public health officials called the post antibiotic apocalypse, where people are getting infections that they simply can't be treated for with a high mortality and uh, you know, right. hospitals are having to close and operating rooms are having to close because of infections like staphylococcus that can't be treated with current antibiotics. And the, the industry, the vaccine manufacturers have said, well, we're pulling out of the market for research into new antibiotics because by the time we get to market, the bugs are already resistant. So right. it's way time. So they're smart. Yeah. They, yeah. So we're dealing with an extraordinary intelligence in these, a collective intelligence in these organisms, these bacteria or viruses that allows for their survival. And it's not intelligence as we understand it. It's, in, it's a collective intelligence that allows them to survive, come what may. Right. And they've defeated antibiotics and they're defeating vaccines. So we're now seeing the same scenario with measles vaccine, that we are seeing the emergence of vaccine resistant strains in highly vaccinated populations. So for example, there are new strains that are emerging, what are called D, I think D3 strains in countries like the UK and France, highly vaccinated populations that are not prevalent in say East Africa where vaccination has been much more recent and far more sporadic in its application. So. We're now seeing the emergence of these new strains. And the problem comes is if that new strain is more dangerous. And studies have shown that the emergent strains of measles have the same genetic characteristics as the measles strain that causes a severe and universally fatal encephalitis, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. This is not good news. That bad news is compounded by the fact, and there was a fascinating study that came out of Boca Raton, out of the, of the um, blood bank there, that these blood banks, bank, blood banks across the world, purify um, antibio antibodies from uh, the donors to give to people who have congenital immunodeficiencies. So that if measles comes along, Certain people who have these genetic immunodeficiencies cannot receive a live viral vaccine because it would kill them. 
And so they are protected by what is called hyperimmune globulin. Antibodies taken from the blood of people who've experienced measles, natural measles, and have lifelong infection, uh, lifelong immunity. immunity. Yeah. What was happening is that these blood donor centers, they were unable to meet the level of antibody against measles, the protection demanded by the FDA. They were failing. They were not efficacious. And so what they said is, okay, well, let's go back and let's vaccinate our donors just before we take their blood sample. And that'll boost their antibodies and wow. then we'll over overcome the FDA's objections. Wow. And that was a complete failure. It did not work. So they did a fascinating study is they had samples that they had stored of blood from donors going way back to people born during the time of natural measles, right the way through to the modern day. And they took those individuals, they categorized them into groups, born in sort of 10-year cohorts, some born back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and right the way through. And they measured the what is called the neutralizing antibody levels in those samples. Now, people are now very familiar with neutralizing antibodies. The one thing about COVID is that people know now talk about PCR and neutralizing antibodies as though they, it's, it's fascinating. The education right, of the right. world has been, but um, neutralizing antibodies are those that protect against infection. And they are a part, a proportion of the vaccine, the, the antibodies that are produced in response to an infection, but they are the functional part. They're the important part that protect us. So they neutralize the virus. They looked, they analyzed for neutralizing antibodies in these blood samples from these successive birth cohorts, going back to the 50s, right the way through to the modern day. And they found that those who were born back in the days of natural measles had very high protective neutralizing antibody levels. And then there was a dramatic decline with the introduction of the single measles vaccine or the single shot. And then it just kept plummeting from there. And when they introduced the booster shot, it made no difference whatsoever. The levels kept going down to a point where they were effectively unmeasurable, to a point where we are looking at a population of healthy, ostensibly healthy blood donors now who have no antibodies to protect them against measles. So should a new strain, an emergent strain of measles come that is resistant to any antibodies and is dangerous, then we have a very large population of people who are at risk, right. a global population. And so this, the role of vaccines in promoting mutations, promoting the emergence of resistant strains of the virus is so important in COVID. And I, I was fascinated to see that um, some experts from across the, the, the globe actually talking about this issue, just as you, know, you and I had been talking about measles and the article discussed measles, that when you introduce COVID vaccines, let's not even call them vaccines, COVID right. shots, because right. that's, you know, it's a misnomer to call them, they're genetic engineering. When you introduce these, they do exactly the same thing. They put a genetic selection pressure on this virus 
And I would predict that if we'd done nothing, if we had allowed this respiratory pathogen, which was created in a laboratory in Wuhan, we'd, that, we'd put that to one side for the moment, but if we had allowed it to come to peak and to diminish without interfering, without putting in place measures which were imperfect and which put a selection pressure on the virus, then this problem would have rapidly disappeared. That is the natural history of these respiratory infections. Let's just take a, a, a ridiculous example of, of, of what I mean. Um, we social distance by six feet. That's what the CDC tells us to do, World Health Organization. Social distance by six feet. Well, let's just assume that the virus can jump. And we're socially distancing by six feet because the vast majority, the dominant strain of this virus, COVID-19, or the coronavirus can only jump four feet. And so if we social distance by six feet, it can't infect us. <laughs> Except the strong ones can jump right. six feet. Oh, well, that now, that's right. <laughs> that's not what viruses are like. They are a quasi-species where some can only jump one foot. The majority can jump four feet, but some can jump eight feet. Right. Now, if we socially distance by six feet, all of those that can only jump less than six feet are going to die out. But what are we going to see emerge is those that can jump eight feet. Right. More infectious virus. Right. So I know it's a silly example because we know viruses don't jump, but nonetheless, it illustrates the dangers of putting in place measures which are only potentially partially effective, including anti-vaccines. And we've seen that. The vaccine is really very poor in its efficacy and doesn't last. And what that will do is encourage the emergence of new strains of the virus, new strains of the spike protein. And that's exactly what we've seen. Omicron was an example. And, and this is what the, the, the head of Pfizer knows this, and he said it. And he said, we're just going to have to keep on producing new strains, you know, vaccines against new strains. As we force the creation of new strains, then we it's a job job creation scheme. We'll then create wow. a new vaccine. So yeah. Well, it's not unlike... A, sorry, go on. I'm sorry. It's not unlike chickenpox when they did the post-surveillance study and found an increase in shingles. And when Gary Goldman went to the CDC to report this and say, whoa, we've got to you know, examine this, the answer was, no problem, we'll just make a vaccine for shingles. Oh, yeah. yeah exactly we'll just... what you're describing. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's appalling. Merck created a disease with their vaccine and then created a vaccine for the disease they created. Right. Uh, and it, well, what an extraordinary corruption of the natural process. And a, what a very dangerous corruption of the natural process, all for profit. Right. So it, it's, and, and herpes viruses uh, such as um, chickenpox, they, they work in different ways. But, you know, each virus has devised a way to outwit right. man's intentions. <laughs> right, exactly. Because yeah. these things are geared up to survive. That is what they will do. And so, uh, we've, we've created a disastrous situation. I think that there are many amongst the, the vaccinology community and the, certainly in the industry who know it and are, are exploiting it and using it to, to ram home the, the fundamental fear of, of infection. And, 
it all was really totally unnecessary. Um, right. And we focused upon natural immunity. Had we given people the right treatments that were that were withheld, that were withheld, ivermectin, um, hydroxychloroquine, uh, vitamin D, whatever it might be, whether it were all, all um, homeoprophylaxis or homeo, homeo, homeopathy to actually treat, then right. had we allowed those things in the face of something that you know was out of control and and clearly these many of these treatments had evidence of, of efficacy, but we didn't. And the reason we didn't, the reason that the people like Tony Fauci did not do that is because they wanted a vaccine and vaccine only agenda. And they couldn't force this vaccine on people through um, emergency use authorization if there was an alternative effective treatment. Exactly. That's part of the rules. Right, right. So there couldn't be an alternative effective treatment. They had to deny the viability of ivermectin and other things as, as, as effective treatments because otherwise they would not have been able to force their vaccine and vaccine only agenda. And we're seeing the same thing with children now is that they are allowing this vaccine, encouraging this vaccine for children who have zero risk of mortality right. from COVID-19, uh, but who um, are being used as an experiment. Uh, for, for the um, you know the use of the vaccine, the widespread exploitation of the vaccine, but the real reason is because if it's approved in children, then they the manufacturers are exempt from liability for death and injury caused by their vaccine right. if it's approved if it's on the CDC's approved childhood vaccine schedule. So it's a purely it's a commercial scam and it's a disgrace. Criminal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, what we know with homeoprophylaxis addresses this very concept that over the last 200 years, familiarizing people with the information inherent in these viruses or bacteria, they become familiarized and can work in conjunction with them on an immunological level so that they, they are building natural immunity, as we've seen with the leptospirosis study. You know, they've virtually eliminated leptospirosis in Cuba. They're no longer dying from lepto every season. And we know that with homeoprophylaxis, there's no risk for 200 years. We've been seeing this. There's no risk. So I really feel like it's it's got to play some role going forward with natural immunity and with the children in the program that I've seen well over five or 6,000 at this point, these parents love it. They're seeing their kids get a virus, you know, mount an immune response, have a fever. Um, and then within 24, 48 hours, resolve it and be back to baseline, which is what's normal for children. But we no longer see that. We see these kids that are stuck in an immune response that can last weeks, months, chronic sinusitis, chronic ear infections, chronic coughs, and parents are accepting this as normal. Yes, that's the part of the tragedy. Your leptospirosis talk was uh, truly inspiring. I was fascinating. I didn't, I didn't know about it, I'm ashamed to say, and it really tuned me into the, the value of homeoprophylaxis and has been adopted by the Cuban authorities. I mean, that is right. the most compelling uh, but the reason, of course, it, it hasn't succeeded and hasn't become widespread is that commercially it has little value compared with 
with the vaccines they're making. And if you if you get in the pharmaceutical industry's way in terms of their profiteering, then you're going to pay a very heavy price. And so it's not about helping people or making people keeping people well or or helping them deal with infection. It's about right. It's about profits. Profit, and and that's that's an utter disgrace. And I'm I'm afraid that bought into that are the heads of the CDC, the NIH, the FDA. They fully fully bought in and i use the word bought in um advisedly i so i think it's 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 very sad um but so you know the good news if we can find unearth some good news in this is the you mentioned this the intelligence of the public has risen exponentially during this period of time where parents are educating themselves parents are digging for more answers. They're looking at this push to vaccinate their children, give their children this shot and reflecting back on all the other shots they've been coerced into giving and questioning. And I think that is part of the benefit, if you can call it that, where people are learning and people are recognizing, I've got to research this for myself. I just can't take what someone tells me and accept it without questioning. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and the, 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 it's rather like the education of the immune system, the instruction of the immune system. We are being instructed by what we're witnessing now. And we, I just to sort of reflect on this uh, to give it to sort of bring in some good news to it is that you know, when I got involved 30 years ago in this field, there were but a handful of people worldwide prepared to talk about the thorny issue of vaccine safety, and now it's half the world. And it's half the world for several reasons. One is because the principal reason is COVID. COVID has caused people to become enlightened. It's allowed them to see the industry for what it is, for to see people like Tony Fauci for who he is, for Peter Daszak for the, who he is, and also learn a great deal about their own innate immunity and and so the, the the call for your kind of intervention, your kind of protection, natural health is unparalleled as it is right now. It's incredible. And so we are in a situation where there's a massive loss of confidence in the vaccine policymakers, in the vaccine manufacturers, and they have only themselves to blame for that right. And so people are waking up and sadly a lot of people will suffer and some many will die um have died as a consequence of the one in the refusal to give effective treatments and to the exploitation of a anti a vaccine that is wholly untried and untested and, we, and we've only started to see the complications i'm starting to deal with right the fallout yeah. Infertility at the moment. Infertility is going to be a huge issue going forward. Um, you know, so sad. And it was known. The these eighty thousand pages that are coming out, it was known. It was known, and yeah. that's why they didn't want it to emerge for however many decades, yeah. seventy years or seventy-five years, because right. they knew that how bad it was. And you're, you're dealing with Pfizer, a company that is a criminal enterprise. Essentially, it's paid criminal fines of in excess of you know in billion in the billions for the crimes it's committed in defrauding people and bribing and lying altering results so people have no reason whatsoever 
to trust this company and every reason not to trust it. And the same goes for, sadly, for all pharmaceutical companies, in my opinion. Right. Well, Andy, as bleak as things seem to be, I have to say that interfacing with individuals like yourself who are open and researching and thinking clearly, it's so uplifting to be able to interface with you. And I too am an optimist and I believe that we're going forward in a, in a better way. It's like we're in labor giving birth to a new world and labor is confusing and chaotic and difficult and painful, but that new world is emerging. And I think that that's an amazing thing. And I, I too am happy to be here for that. So in closing, I would like you to share, you know, any upcoming projects you have. I saw Infertility, a Diabolical Agenda. That was fabulous. Um, whatever happened to Alex Sportalakis, is that the right? Uh, yeah, what, what, who killed Alex Who Bordelakis? killed, yeah. Oh, that was outstanding. I highly recommend that um, to anyone to watch. And of course, Vaxxed, I mean, so many wonderful projects. What, what do you have on the horizon? What do you want to share? Uh, where do you want people to look next? Well, where to go for the existing films? Please go to 1986-1986theact.com and you can see three of the films there. If you want to watch for free the latest infertility film that I made with Bobby Kennedy, then that is available at infertilitythemovie.com and you can screen it for free. Uh, it's a, it's a short, it's 30 minutes, extraordinary story. Um, one I got drawn into to write and direct and uh, based on footage shot by someone else, James Henry, uh, over in Kenya. And a story that is, as, a, as a filmmaker, it's it's a risk taking someone else's footage and, and trying to make a film of it, make a story of it. But this was so utterly compelling, this story, that I felt it was worth that risk and... Uh, so yes. please go and watch that for free, infertilitythemovie.com. And then uh, our latest project. Well, we are in pre-production on a major full-length narrative feature. Um, you know, this is not a documentary. This is a film, a movie uh, in the genre of Aaron Brockovich, uh, The Insider, um, The Big Short, this kind of thing. Very, very exciting times. And... We are close to closing the funding on that we need for production. Um, if anybody is motivated to help us get this made, we would be enormously grateful um, and come to us, team 1986, team1986.com and contact us. We, we uh, are very close to closing things and um, we start production later this year. Does it have a title? It 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 doesn't at the moment. We have as a working title, but um, I, it's not a film I can say much about um, I, at this stage, just because of you know it's uh, we want to keep it as close to the chest as possible. Right. But it's, uh, it, it's a it's an, it, it refers it really does what you referred to earlier, and that is once people now people have experienced COVID and and all everything that's gone on around COVID, they are ready to go back to looking at the childhood vaccine schedule as not just a rite of passage that must be safe because 
we're told it's safe by public health authorities. But actually, oh, is this safe after all? If it's anything like what we've experienced with the COVID vaccine, then it's it, this needs investigation. And this story does that. It brings people across the bridge from, you're not going to put that into me. I'm, you know, I'm an adult and I'll determine what I'm going to have into my body and add to the childhood vaccine program that has unfortunately been treated as a rite of passage for children and assumed to be safe by many parents based on misinformation given to them by medical professionals. And, and so this goes a long way to unearthing that and resolving that, that issue. That's outstanding. And when do you anticipate this, this will be out? Gosh, you know, um, I would say, let's say sometime in the first half of next year. Okay. Uh, it's very difficult to predict. It's rather like plotting, uh, planning a, a sailing trip. You know, right, right, <laughs> yeah. right. You, you have Plan A, Plan B, Plan right. C, right the way through to M. So people yeah. can get information on 1986, the Act. That's right. About yeah. this, they can follow us there. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, I thank you. It's always uplifting, wonderful to chat with you, Andy. And please reach out if there's any way in which we can coordinate things moving forward in the world. You're very kind. Thank you, sir. It's great pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks, Andy. Bye-bye. 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 To watch Dr. Andy Wakefield's interview along with other experts in the Real Immunity film series, go to realimmunity.org.